Good. You hear me? <laughs> Brandon. Can you hear me? Welcome to the streak of lean. Hey, man. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can. I can. We're good. That's great. I got... Uh, hold on. Check this Check this song out. It's so fitting. Four hungry children and a crop in the field. She freaking left him. Hey man, Merry Christmas! Yeah, brother, Merry Christmas to you. I got my new, I got my new headphones on. So hopefully this solves my, my audio problem. You sound good. Yeah, hopefully it's not. Hopefully, yeah, man. It feels weird with the headphones on, but man, yeah, Merry Christmas, brother. How was your Christmas? It's good. It was really good. Uh, I'm tired. I feel a little hungover from Christmas. Just uh, kind of beat myself up playing tennis yesterday, which, you know, first world problems. And uh, <laughs> no, really, like, I, I hit my leg with a tennis racket and got this massive subdermal hematoma. Wow. Which at, at first I was like, that's nothing. But um, I was at this OBGYN's house at his tennis court. He was, he's married to the, through the family, like married into the family kind of, it's not really like a primary connection. And, mm-hmm. um, he came right out. Everyone, like, I didn't really think it, I was a serve. I didn't really think it was that bad and, uh, you know, hurt. And I just kept playing the point and then they pointed at me and said, Oh my God, your leg, <laughs> your vagina. And then, <laughs> and then immediately he was just like, could bring me. I need, I need some compression. I need some ice. I need some uh, hydroperoxide. And then, like, I was quickly being attended to, and then had my leg wrapped. Um, Seriously. But if you, but if you, yeah, yeah. But if you saw the cut today, I mean, it looked bad because it was swollen. It had bled, bled. But it is like, I mean, it is like maybe longer than my fingernail, my thumb. <laughs> it, is, it is this tiny little bitty uh-huh. wound. That's um, the worst ones. Um, but people think it, you know, everyone wanted to see it today after I took the wrap off. I was like, it, y'all, it doesn't even look like, I mean, it looks like I, I walked through a, a spiny bush or something and I got scratched. It doesn't look bad at all. Well, you better keep an eye on it, Coop. You never know, man. My kid got a scratched by a dog and then we went fishing like a week later and then it, uh, he somehow got cellulitis, man. And it was, what is that? It, dude, it's a bacterial infection. And and I guess he got it from like the the maybe the bait bucket like the shrimp or you know who, who the doctor said that you know it's just you just get bacteria in a scrape but his hand it was so nasty and it was like off of this tiny little cut that was like a week old and it, you know then all of a sudden man he's running like a hundred and four fever and his hand was all streaking up his arm and it was raunchy so you gotta keep an eye That's- on. Well, I'm not. I'm. I'm pretty good about keeping stuff clean. Um, yeah, it, it he's does not. remind me. He's, well, I mean, imagine he's. Yeah, I mean, he's a kid, right? So, like, that's his. His mo is to get dirty, which I respect. Oh yeah, he was just sitting in the deer stand with me today, hunting barefoot. You know, Did y'all get anything? No, nah, we were really just screwing around. He got a. B, I got him a BB gun for Chris. He's only seven, so I got him a BB. He's always. You know, he's the middle child, so he's always getting the hand-me-down stuff of his brother. So even his shoes are like Michael's old shoes, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and he's always used Michael's BB guns and, you know, whatever. And so we got him a, a little air rifle with a scope. And uh, so we, we, I took him out in the deer stand, but I was letting, hope, hoping some squirrels would come out, but they didn't. And, um, but no, we didn't. He wanted me to shoot some songbirds, but I didn't. Yeah. We, shot, <laughs> I we, we shot at some buzzards, which is fun. Uh, we just, you know, knocked a couple cardinals down. No problem. Oh, he's um, a bat, bat. Dude, yeah. Well, he's like the kid that's like, he is, he's, he's like the one that is, my oldest, who's 11, is, is your stereotypical farm kid in the sense that he's like, a uh, really good problem solver and he's very independent and he's quick on his feet type and he's bit you know and it's from like just his personality but also he spent a fair amount of time running around sort of you know with nobody really supervising him he, he kind of knows how to take care of himself 
but he's like super uh, book smart and he's not, you, you never get the feeling that he would do that for a living, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, but my middle child, on the other hand, he loves uh, the, as the nature aspect of it and like the animals and, and chasing lizards and ch- chasing turtles. And, and he wants to eat every fish. He wants to eat even our aquarium fish. Like he's obsessed with eating. He loves to eat stuff that he has caught. He, he just loves it. Like it's crazy. So in, any of the birds or like anything that we saw, he was just like, can you shoot it, Daddy? Can you shoot it? <laughs> how much, like, how badly does he want to eat your aquarium fish? Oh, it's on. I mean, he'll bring it up. Like, if we grow, Daddy, do you think if we grow him out for, you know, a few more months, will he big, be big enough to eat? And I'm like, well, we're not going to eat him. But no, he's a, he's a beta fish. I would say you have a beta. <laughs> we got him an aquarium for Christmas, too, because he's obsessed with fish. He'll... He eats sardines after school as a snack, and like he's just his his idol is um this guy named Coyote Peterson who's like he's got some fishing show apparently, and Cason's uh, just all about it. Like he he just loves to fish, but he lo- he pl- he helped me plant sugarcane today. Cool. And um he's all about it, man. You know. And how much did y'all plant? Uh, we didn't plant a ton, and I'm not even sure is it too late or. I don't know much about planting sugarcane. Um, well, you're planting for next year, I would think. Yeah, but you know, once it's cut, how long do you have before you before you can actually get it in the ground? That's like, so this was cut. Oh yeah, you know, back like into November, and but it's still heavy. You know, we were chewing, yeah. we were chewing on some of it today. It's really heavy, and um, it looked it didn't look rotted or anything. So we'll just see. But we had bought like, I had gotten like. I don't know, maybe 20 big stalks, you know, that we cut up and, and planted. So not a ton, but enough to, you know, have some sugar cane hopefully next year. I guess it takes, you, takes a, it'll, you know, you're probably looking at like harvesting it before the first freeze. So, so around Thanksgiving. Well, I and mean, I think, you know, I, I, I'm, you want a little cold on it too, but not too much because you still got to protect it. Even when you cut it, you have to protect it after if you have it out in the field and you're um you're not ready to to get juice out of it. Uh-huh. Or to, but um, so do you oh, know once I, it comes up, you mean? Well, I I just yeah, and I like I, I shouldn't talk about something I don't know anything about. But I also I'm just curious. Do you know? Do you have a variety on it? Uh, I got it's a, it's a green sugar cane that I bought. The guy told me that it was sweeter. I I specifically asked him if it would be good for syrup, if it's sweet. And he said it's sweeter than the purple stuff. That was it is, the, huh. the words out of his mouth. I didn't even bring up the purple because the purple sugar cane is one of those things that has gotten trendy. Yeah, right. And um, the only guy that I, I love sugar cane. I love cane syrup. It's one of the first food memories that I have as a kid was eating, eating cane syrup for the first time at Po Folks restaurant on Memorial Drive in Clarkston. And I, Man, I, I remember thinking, like, what is this? This is this is so bizarre, but so good. But I went, yeah. to, I, I got to go to a cane grinding once in Reedsville. Unfortunately, the the guy that put it on has passed away, and I actually saw his wife at a Christmas party in Reedsville, and I was trying to ask her about the sugar cane because I don't really have a lot of people I can ask. And I was asking her, and she was like, "Well, just you just can't let it freeze." Right. And I was like, well, it hadn't froze. You know, I've kept it and it hadn't it hadn't been exposed to any freezing temperatures. And then I I I was hoping that you plant it. And then because he had he had touched on this at the when we went and did the grinding. And he was like, no, you got to you know, you just bank it under a bunch of mulch and stuff. Right. That's right. That's what I was getting at. You know, and, and I was hoping that down here, at least if you planted it now, Maybe it would root out, but it wouldn't th- put up any new growth out of the ground until, you know, maybe spring. But maybe I'm totally incorrect. I think you'd be fine. I can go I'm, dig I'm, it I'm, up. If, if, I, if there's a different way to do it, I can just go dig it up tomorrow. You know? Yeah, well, maybe somebody, maybe someone who knows. But, you know, there's so much. Um, ah, yes. If somebody knows, send us an email. Yeah. Yeah, info at streakofleanpod.com. Just send an um, email and say. You're doing it wrong, buddy, and I would do it right. Yeah. Well, Brandon, I mean, that, you know, we should 
uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about the sugarcane and maybe to talk about this in the future because that purple ribbon has really taken off and you see features in Garden Gun elsewhere oh yeah it's so it's so sexy right i mean yeah i mean is it different i mean it's it's a and i actually i think that it's not um it's it's i think it's an approximation of what was being grown in Mm -hmm. the uh at at a certain point in time in the south but it's being grown in mcintosh county you know much respect to jerome dixon he's growing it out there and he's working with the folks at sapelo and I think he's taken his sugar cane to, I think it's called Odom Farms. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah. They, up, up. You know what I'm I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Where is it? Uh, it's in Odom. It's, but the farm it, name. Oh, it's in Odom. It's in Odom, yeah, what is it? Georgia, which is outside of Jessup. Yes. And the farm, it's like a, the guy obviously has some cash, and he's got a big um, like facility for mashing and, and making syrup. And he's the guy. The bottles, uh, Mickey's Farm. Yeah, and I think the bottles say have a picture of MAGA and Pop on them. That's right, Mickey's Farm Inc., Odom, Georgia. MAGA and Pops Sugar House. Yeah, I bought. Um, God, I did some sort of trading with a guy in Odom one time, and I asked him about that guy, and he was like, "Oh yeah, he's got a big old. You'll see his huge house and." You know, but I've passed it like numerous times since then. And uh, it's cool to see sugarcane, like cane syrup, sort of becoming mainstream. But at the same time, like, it's the type of thing that's just ripe for when that happens with the glossy. And then the, and then um, all most, I think most chefs are pretty, um, pretty, you know, like sincere in their effort when something like that comes about and, and they kind of jump on the bandwagon with it. But it also, you know, I'm sh- I can just see the. It's not a I don't know what the word is, but like the field trips to go out there and stuff, and it's our it's the next big thing, you know. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? And then next year it's something else, right? It's like, but I think it's cool for the the dude in in Macintosh and Townsend um, Dixon. I've never met him, but I think that's cool. Anything that that they can do, because I think that woman that was sort of you know, they had that little group that was trying to revitalize the Sapelo red pea, you know, and then the cane yeah, Miss, syrup. Miss Bailey. And she passed away. Mm-hmm. And um, is she now, how is she related to Bailey, the football player? I, or is I, she I not? think she is. Because she he's from I Sapelo. I think that's his grandmother, if I'm not mistaken, or but, uh, great aunt. Alan, I met his sister Alan Bailey, I think. Yeah. Uh, played University of Miami, and then for the Chiefs for yeah, a while. Yeah, for the Chiefs, that's right. But I think it's cool to like to for for stuff that you know culturally. I think the cane syrup is you know can be claimed by I know most I'm sure a ton of other places, but I definitely for a fact in South Georgia, you're not going to find too many kitchens that don't have cane syrup a bottle of it. Yeah, and I think that's also it's curious. That I think most people who have cane growing in in their backyard or, or making syrup. I have a feeling they don't have like a good sense of what the variety is. It's just being passed around and shared. That's right. And so it's interesting. And I, if you were really looking for a specific kind of cane syrup and you typed it in online or kind of sugar cane, Alibaba pops up with all kinds of stuff. Um, wait, I don't know wait, how to trust. Wait, <laughs> yeah. I, that Alibaba is weird. But I, well, I'll tell you this. I know where the woman that I did the thing with, with her husband, when he was in the choir that my, <sighs> my wife was in charge of, um and he did that grinding but she still has all the equipment and you just hook it up on a tractor and it grinds it up it's this old ass metal grinding wheel type thing yeah yeah she still has it and she was like well if you get enough and you want to come up just come up and and hook it up and do it and you know you can take it home and because it wouldn't be enough to use the big cauldron to boil it down but i was thinking you could probably do it and get enough juice to bring it home and, and put it on a propane burner out back and boil it down and have maybe a bottle of syrup. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of work, but yeah. it's a, it is a, it's a, it's a good write. Um, and it's something that's important, I think not to be lost. It would be, it would um, be super cool. I buy bottles just, you know, at the processor where I take pigs, they'll sell three or four different, um, types of, or not types of cane syrup, but bottled by different local people, you know, it'll have their little name on it and, I always keep one. I eat it a lot. I love it. 
Well, Brandon, since you brought up pigs, actually, before we get to that, I want to just like shout out to Poe folks. Um, good memories there. Seriously, and Clarkston. All right. Well, all right. Two back to Clarkson. So we thought that this would be a good opportunity, Brandon, for you to tell your story about how you got started, how this young, no good Nick from Stone Mountain, Georgia, <laughs> got the farming bug and um, wh- what your journey was from, um, uh, you know, just somebody out there harassing cops to uh, <laughs> slinging pork across the southeast. Uh-huh. Um, well, I'd be happy to tell it, man. You know, I don't, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. My, my oldest, the kid that I was talking about, my 11 year old, he, I was listening to one of our episodes in the car mm-hmm. and my wife was just shaking her head. Cause my audio was so bad. Right. And, and she's like, yeah. she's like, you can't even hear you. And I'm thinking, <laughs> honey, you know, it's like, okay. And then the 11 year old pipes up and he goes, <laughs> he goes, I mean, he goes, why? I don't understand. Like, why are y'all, why, are y'all, why are y'all doing this? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, damn, you know, like I just, I'll listen to this when I'm alone, you know, like, <laughs> you know, why, why does anybody do anything? You know, like he wasn't being mean. It was just a sincere question, but I guess everything I was talking about, he had heard, like he's probably just been exposed to so much of it that he's like, everybody knows about this type of stuff, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, I, you know, I don't know how interesting of a story it is, but I, uh, I did, I grew up in stone mountain and I'm, uh, I was born in the late seventies to put a, you know, to put a date on myself from 77. And, and, you know, we, at that time, and, um, I was just talking to my mom via text when I was a kid, See, we had Mathis Dairy, which was in Redan, um, mm-hmm. uh, and they delivered our milk when we when I was a kid. So, like Stone Mountain, when I was a kid, there was still uh, there was you know some um, people had cows and stuff out there still. It was still in the country, uh, so to, you know, sort of like in a suburban. But we we were covered in woods, you know. So I was kind of mm-hmm. ripe for like like I was always out in the woods catching turtles and salamanders and lizards and you know hanging out and building tree forts so i was kind of ripe um i feel like for a job outdoors so that's that wasn't very surprising about it and i actually took an aptitude test when i was in middle school and i i sort of jury rigged it to where like i was trying to influence it to where it would tell me that I could become a crabber <laughs> that I can become a crabber. Cause I really wanted to become <laughs> a crabber and move. I used to beg my parents to move to Shelman bluff or move to St. Simon's or, you know, anywhere on the coast where I could be around a marsh and be out. So I, you know, and I didn't know anything about crabbing, but you know, just to be outdoors. And, um, and then, you know, I don't know the, um, the farming part of it, you know, I kind of got out of high school and then just kind of floundered around, you know, throughout my twenties. And, um, it was just kind of a lost decade. Like I, I really, I partied a lot, but I took it, I took it way too far. I got in a shitload of trouble. Um, I don't, I don't have to bore people with that, but I did. I got, I, at one point I had four pending charges in, um, DeKalb city of Atlanta, Chatham County and Milledgeville. (laughs) for like i used to get in a shitload of trouble just dumb stuff though like i did get a um i got charged with a felony for fighting one time but it got dropped but um i would get i would get drunk and do dumb stuff right um so i would you know the things that come with drinking too much were the things that i would get in trouble for like duis and public intoxication just taking it too far but being still young enough to where it, I kind of had moments where it was pretty fun, you know? Uh, and I just couldn't accept that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't the alcohol that was causing me to do the stupid shit. It was just the, you know, the cop was a dickhead or the bartender, you know, or whoever my girlfriend, you know, if she only understood, you know, or whatever. And so, um, I kind of got through my twenties and, uh, but I, I kind of floundered to the point where I was just kind of burning out. Like I didn't, my, all my friends were getting out of college and stuff. And 
I didn't feel like I had a ton of options. And um, so I got scared enough at one point to go back to school, which I did. And I went and I got a bachelor's degree in history. It was great. I did fantastic. I made Dean's list and, and, and it gave me this huge boost of confidence that I could actually, I could actually be a part of society. And, and I wasn't just, you know, just a sort of a loser that like, you know, had lost his way, you know, and, um, cause I was always that kid that people always talked about, you know, they would say things like he's really smart if he could only a- apply this to, to doing the right thing though, you know, like if he can apply this to trying to succeed rather than apply this to like, how can we do X, Y, and Z and beat the system? Um, I got that history degree. And then, you know, the thing that comes up with a history degree is what can you do with the history degree? Right. Which which the university never, um, they never kind of told me that, you know, and I, I was just so happy to be getting a degree, but so anyways, I got out of school, I went into sales and I kind of backed into a job in a wholesale horticulture. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever to be learning about all these plants. This wasn't, marijuana horticulture this was like landscape ornamental horticulture right and so and you're still in stone mountain this time like, have you uh, been i had state? we well i had i had got out of school i had i had i guess i admitted that i had i was um newly well yeah yeah i guess and then got married like right around the time that i'm working at this nursery we were living me and my wife now my wife nadia we were living at that point down at La Vista road at the intersection of La Vista and Briarcliff in an apartment across from the whole foods right there. Yeah. It's not there anymore. It's like townhouses now, but our apartment had the old school uh, windows that you hand cranked them to open them. Yeah. And dude, I loved it. She, she thought it was like, she didn't, she didn't see the charm in the windows that I did, but I mean, I think our rent man was like 700 a month or something. And it was like a two bedroom, had hardwood, two, 700 a month to live. <laughs> that thing would that be 2,500, 3,000. Oh, I mean, easy, that's crazy. Easy, dude. And it wasn't, it wasn't small. It was a nice little apartment. We, we enjoyed it. We would walk around, but I was still struggling with like the drinking. I would, I would sober up for periods of time, months, but then I would start thinking, ah, I bet you I could drink a six pack or, you know, and I would, and it would all start over again. Somehow she stayed with me through this. I almost lost her. But, um, but during this particular period of time, I was sober for like a couple of years and, um, we had, got, we had gotten pregnant with Michael who's 11 now. And I was working at this nursery out in Grayson called Buck Jones. It was a big wholesale nursery doing all these plants and really just working as like a hand, you know, just working. It was, I think eight acres. And so you're doing a lot of manual labor, sprinklers, irrigations, moving plants, loading trucks, but I learned a ton about these plants and I just thought it was awesome. Like I really loved, I've always loved plants and I, I just fell right into it. Like I, I know all, I still know all these plants and stuff. And so um, we bought a house out in Monroe in, in a town called between, but it's, it's in Monroe and it was in a neighborhood. We paid like one forty, I think we were right at the top of the real estate bubble. And so we probably overpaid by like a solid 20 grand on that back then but it was it's out in the country we had an hoa but it was on an acre which i thought was like huge like oh my god it's on an acre and my son michael was born i quit buck jones and started um, a landscaping and construction like fence decks um some patios and plants type landscaping company and we would do some like stone work and stuff too but you know just trying to um just trying had that desperation of wanting to succeed you know i had a kid and we had bought a house and um you know it was like back then you could buy a house with the only proof of your income being i was making 12 dollars an hour at buck jones and they allowed me to buy a house (laughs) (laughs) you know what year was that uh 2007 and we still have a house i I rent it out i rent it out now i I rent it out to the guy that the, the guy that got me sober I rent him my house for nine fifty a month and I'll never change that rent. Like I'm like, you saved my life. He's had his own troubles since then, but he, he, he legitimately saved my life. And I feel like, you know, he, it's just one of those deals. Like 
you get a rent pass, like nine fifty, whatever. And um, oh, let, let me ask you a question real quick. Yeah, yeah. So, so what is it like? What is the like? Talk about the feelings that you had when you've got a a, a baby, you've got a house, mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. you're going to start your own company. Even though it's not uh, it's farming, just it's still just, just dumb. Right. I mean, I was still foggy because I, Michael, when Michael was born, I, I was able to string together, I think two years, maybe a year and a half of not drinking. But there's a big, and I don't want to turn this into a recovery podcast, but it's a big part of my story. It really is. I, um, look, I, I, I come across, I just like, just like, just straight out here. I can't tell you how much addiction, like just I come across with friends and family. Oh and, yeah, well when you open some, up you about know, it, yeah, for yeah. sure. Go ahead. I think it's something we all need to talk about. I think also, you know, mental health is an important thing to talk about. Chemical addiction is an important thing to talk about. Yeah, we we go straight to to making people villains and looking as as moral failures and not talking about it in ways that, like no, this is just folks need help. This is or not, either either you know, you're a square, right? Like, yeah, oh, right. You know the thing about being in in recovery. See, like. Like back then, I I would just not drink, but I wasn't in any sort of recovery. Like I wasn't, I wasn't doing. If in my own experience, when I just didn't drink, it's basically like having a giant wound, and I'm taking away the band aid, which is alcohol. Right? It's like the alcohol isn't really the problem. The alcohol is just a symptom of the problem. Yeah, if that makes sense. And so back then, I was so foggy from like. Um, trying to not drink, but I didn't replace it with anything like spiritual or anything. I just was working myself. I would just throw myself into work, whatever other obsession I could get, you know, to replace the obsession with drinking. I would, so I was obsessed with working and like um, succeeding and this and that. And so when we, it was just kind of like one of those desperate things you do, like at that moment, you're young, you're young enough and desperate enough to do something stupid. Well, and, and Brandon, I mean, I'm I'm not one to pry, and you answer this however you want. But you know, when did your father pass away? How old were you then? Uh, well, I was 28. He died in 2005. 2005. Yeah, that was um, sort of like the. I was bad off drinking for a long time before that. Really, throughout through the from the mid 90s to 2005. I, mean, I went to my first AA meeting when I was 21. And I wasn't ready to get sober, but, but without a doubt, I belonged in that room. I didn't think so at the time, but the way I drank, um, from the, really from the first time I drank, I always drank like in a abnormal way mm-hmm. you know? in, in, in a sense of like, I did not understand why would you just go drink a beer? Right. I never like, got in a sense that. of like, there's not going to be alcohol tomorrow. We've got to drink it all right, right we're, now. We're getting fucked up. You know, if, yeah. if we're drinking, we're getting fucked up. And if we're not yeah. getting fucked up, I don't want to drink. Yeah. You know, like, I just didn't, I, I still don't understand that when I see somebody drink like a glass of wine. It's like, <laughs> don't you want a black <laughs> You know, and, um, yeah. uh, but, but that was when my dad passed away, it just broke my, it just broke my heart and my spirit in a way that like, I wasn't prepared for. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I was, I was a man, but I was still very much a child. You know, like because I was stunted by that alcohol, you know, I never really grew up and, and it really did. It crushed me. It just broke my heart. And, um, you know, I think about him all the time still, but I've, I've through being sober, I've been able to come to terms with it and deal with it. And um, I think I, I am OK with it, you know, as much as I can be. Yeah. Can't do anything about it, you know, but it's a big yeah. part of my story, too. I, I sort of it, it like pushed me to either to either get on with it and kill yourself drinking or make a change, you know, like, what do you want? Do you want life or do you want death? You want. And, and so thankfully my wife was like a huge part. So of like, so I, we, we started this little company, me and a buddy and we were both just like dumb. We had some, the best stories of like doing this stuff, but we were both, you know, just at that one, you know, that one of those weird moments in life where you're just dumb enough to do something like that. Cause you're not like thinking big scheme, like, you know, just let's you, Hey, you want to start a landscaping company? Yeah. Like, yeah, man. That sounds awesome. Yeah. We'll just be cutting grass through this rocks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it kind know? of dumb enough to ignore the risks of like, it, Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. Completely. Like if it fails, Oh, well, we'll just go do something else. 
and he wanted to cut grass and I had delusions of grandeur like no 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 we're not we're not going to be a bunch of lawn boys man we're going to do like big shit like and so I sort of I I mean had we just cut grass we probably would have made a ton of money but we didn't because I uh, had this inferiority complex about being a lawn boy and I wanted to be doing fences and decks and shit that I really had no business doing because I didn't really know how to do it and we were having to learn on the fly like (laughs) to do it in the beginning like back in those days now I'm an expert deck builder and fence builder and it's because I I had to learn you know the hard way how to do that and the best a long time ago but um but but around that same time we moved into that house and I took a beekeeping course at UGA with my dad's uncle who's like who's my grandmother's brother but he was born like 22 years after she was so him and my dad he was my dad's uncle but they were the same age does that make sense yeah it does and so is this also like an eastern european thing no this was a south georgia thing it's from county (laughs) Uh, uh, but my 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 grandmother's parents who were sharecroppers for a long part of their life in Tattnall had three children and then didn't have any more kids for like 20 something years. And then Ronnie was born when they were all like in their twenties. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I just like my grandparents had two sons in the early thirties that died and then had my uncle. And then 15 years later had my dad. And then within 10 months had his brother. So Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. just, you know, totally just older people who still have a, a hankering. Yeah, for sure. You know, you just, yeah. you know, one slips by the keeper. I mean, they're yeah. an interesting lot of people. Like you could really tell some really good stories about um, that. They were, they were hard people. And I've yeah. heard some crazy. Um, my uncle told me that, you know, one time they they were just, it was a different, it was a different world. They were hard, hard, hard people. Yep. And some of the, we should have an episode where, where we could talk about just some of the things that, that I've heard and that they've said and did. And they were hard, man. They had a uh, an edge that you don't get growing up in suburban Atlanta. Right. And like, um, but me and him took a, he, he did not have that big of a hard edge because by the time he was born, they actually owned a store out going out on Highway 57 going towards between um, Reedsville and Glenville and they owned a gas station out there. And it was because there was no 95 or 16. And that was the way you went to get to 301. So there was a lot of people that drove through Reedsville going uh, on vacation and whatnot. And so he was born, they had that store. So he didn't have quite the edge that my grandmother and her brother and her sister had. But we took he he's he's an attorney. He lives in Columbus. He's still alive. And um, we took a beekeeping course together at UGA. And it was awesome, dude. And, and and by this point, I was like so into the plants. We took this bee course. I put up some beehives in my backyard on my my acre, you know, and I was like, I want to know where my food's coming from. You know, I read um, Joel Salatin books and I read The Omnivore's Dilemma and um I said, by God, you know, I want to, I want to grow our own food. I want to grow it or either I want to hunt for it. And I put it, I cleared out some woods being that it's funny how like God has a plan, you know, cause like being in the landscaping now, next thing you know, I know how to do a bobcat. I know how to operate chainsaws and build shit. And, you you know, build your fence around your property. Yeah, I mean, I, I got a chainsaw. I cleared out the woods. I got a bobcat. I came back there. I stumped it. You know, I knew how to do all that stuff and I put in a garden and it was super productive first year garden, you know, on that virgin dirt. And, um, and it was awesome, man. And it was really awesome. Like to see, I was canning and like, uh, just, uh, so I just, I was all about it, you know? And, um, I told, I convinced, I, I was, I tried to convince my wife to let me till up the entire backyard so that I could plant it out in vegetables. And I was like, I'll sell them at a farmer's market. And she was like, are you out of your mind? I mean, like, how are you going to make any money? And I was like, no, people make money at farmer's markets. <laughs> and she was like, no, they don't. Like, what are you talking about? And, and, you know, and, 
and but she let me take i took um some veggies and like some bonsai plants that i had made and uh i took them to a farmer's market this is around 2008 probably um I took them to a farmer's market that they were doing across by the cactus car wash down there in like, uh, you know, where that down near city hall East now in Atlanta, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 I know what we're talking about. Yeah. But like back then it was still pretty much skid row and I pulled up with all this stuff and I think I made like, I literally made like 30 bucks. I'm going to say if you made 45, you did really well. And I, and I wanted to cry on the way home. Like she was, you know, she was asking me to, you know, text me a picture of your booth. Show me how it looks. <laughs> like I, just, I made so little money that like, it was like, I just was crushed. But, but, um, there was a guy there that pulled up and he was doing chicken and people flocked to him, man, at least the way I remember it, like flocked to him. And of course he like pulls in and he blocks my space too. So like nobody could see my bonsais and my stupid little vegetables anymore. And um, so it, was this just like, was this a building where you could pull your, your car? It's just like a parking pavilion? lot, like a parking okay. lot. I got you. But like, they were all fawning over his old truck and like his chickens and, you know, and I was like, man, there's something to that. That's cool. Cause I had already read the Joel Salatin book, pastured poultry profits right? Where he talks yeah. about how you can make Joel Salatin will make you believe that people are going to line your street with coolers wanting to buy chickens, which in my experience hasn't been true, but, uh, so I don't, he's, he's, he's I mean, for everybody, like who is Joel Salatin? For Joel Salatin is like a big proponent of, uh, he calls it grass farming, but it's basically like farming in a way that you're quote, healing the environment, healing yourself, healing the world and he's a big proponent of grass-fed beef raising chickens outside on pasture pasture you know raising eggs outside on pasture pasture-based farming yeah. um, rotating rotating his, all that good stuff his it, farm it, is called is manifold farms in western virginia and yeah. he is the kind of guru i mean he's he was featured in guru. omnivore's yeah. dilemma That's by right. michael pollan which was also my kind of touchstone cultural artifact to push me off into my own kind of journey but it uh you know he's he's the guy that shows up and doesn't he show in a uh, food ink um like he is i'm sure kind of the celebrity protein farmer um and he's also an a, a writer so he's also i mean this not to take anything away from him but he's also very good at uh selling you an idea yeah yeah well yeah and and it's probably different like maybe it's different in the part of virginia that he's in Shoot, Charlottesville in D.C.? I mean, come yeah, on. That's, that's right. a totally a lot different of market he's working in. That's right. And, like, you know, when you read his books, like the Pasture Poultry Profits, it's, it'll basically you'll put it down thinking, because the whole gist of the book is that you can make 30 grand on, I think, six acres. No, you can make 30 grand in six months doing pasture poultry. And that's raising chickens outside. And so I, I, I had already read that book and, like, that it just it the whole idea of farming at this point was like i was already there like i I was still doing landscaping but the economy was tanking and i was starting to do like um i had started doing some quail in the backyard i don't remember if i did the quail before yeah i had to have been doing like a little bit of chicken anyways i i ended up borrowing um a chicken plucker from that guy that i saw i kind of became friends with him his name was um daniel dover darby darby farms i sort of became friends with him a li- like in a weird like we were friends i guess you could say like acquaintances but he let me borrow his chicken plucker when i first started out and and, and he's from walton county too right i mean he's yeah he like- was out in good hope he now i think he's up in north carolina but um so like it's odd thing i mean i guess he was there first and then you got interested in it too and then yeah. all of a sudden walton county became a weird pasture poultry uh, <laughs> yeah totally weird <laughs> or mecca for a minute yeah now i don't know i i was into it before i saw him at the farmer's market but i think when i saw him at the farmer's market it was like holy shit people are flocking to him like it said they would and like I really thought, like, oh my God, this this must be you know what what you should be doing is chicken. 
As I, yeah. I was already fooling with some quail and stuff like this. And then um, basically what happened, man, is I, I bottomed out drinking. Like I was sober. Mike and Michael was like um, maybe a year or a year and a half or two years old or something like this. But I went on a, a bender and the economy was in the toilet and Nadi was going to leave me. And like they should kick me out of the house. And I had all my garden. I had all this stuff back there, but like she kicked me out. Right. And, um, the guy that got me sober, like he came and picked me up. I crashed at his house. He became my sponsor. I had had enough. Like I was really, I was going to, I didn't care if she took me back that I, that was what I wanted, but I wasn't going to get sober for any other reason than the fact that I didn't want that bullshit anymore. Like it was just done. It was time for me to move on and from the drinking. And so I committed myself to getting sober and I, I worked the steps with him and um the economy was in the toilet eventually i was able to move back into my house but i was talking to him one day and i was like man i just don't think i can go back and do the landscaping and the construction stuff anymore because i just i hate it i'm so resentful at the whole thing and the economy and all this and he was like he was like yeah man that's cool i can i I can i I can understand that like hey man well what do you want to do what do you like to do and i go I said, man, I I, I, I kind of think I should maybe try farming because I'm thinking like he's going to laugh at me. Right. But I go, I think I should maybe try farming because I'm like, I'm all into like raising like these quail and these chickens and in my garden and stuff. And and he goes, oh, man, that is a great idea. You're going to be a millionaire, man. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God. And like, I mean, I found the one human being on the planet that didn't think that this was like maybe he thought it was a stupid idea but <laughs> i think he, he knew that it was like something that was t- tied enough like tied into my soul enough that it was gonna also kind of help me get sober in a weird way too i think he knew that and like he was like man you're gonna be a millionaire man and i was like oh yeah man okay so I like the next week I took one of my quail and I, I butchered it like I always did for ourselves. And I put it in a Ziploc bag and I walked into the national in Athens, the national restaurant. Peter Dale was the chef. Shout out to Peter Dale. No doubt. And I walked in, in with my quail in a Ziploc bag that I had just skinned it. I didn't even pluck it. I just skinned it. Cause that's how we ate it. We just skin them. And I had a Ziploc quail and I, I said, is the chef here? And the girl went and got him and I, came out and i said you know my name's brandon i i have um uh like a farm out in monroe and you know i didn't even say that you know hey by the way it's like in a neighborhood with an hoa but i said i'm raising these quail and if you're into it you know maybe we can do some business and and i expected to never hear from him again and he called me like two days later and was like we loved it let's you know can you supply us and so that's how it sort of started i started um, I got a little field down the road from a woman who let me just sort of use it and, um, let her. And so I moved everything out of my backyard and I was, uh, had this field down the road and, and I, there was no water. My wife has a great video cause there was no water out there and I had to take buckets to like water. I had chickens out there. I, you know, and I would do them in these like Quonset, like kind of hoop houses that I can move around. That was their shelter. But then they would range out and I would use like portable fences. And um, my wife has a fantastic video. Uh, I guess my truck must have been broken down, but I took my zero turn lawnmower that I still have. It's a John Deere and it still runs, but I had it from way back landscaping. And uh, I had that John, I was riding my John Deere zero turn with like six, five gallon buckets full of water <laughs> on the lawnmower. And it was like a five mile ride to this woman's house and to where my, my chickens were in my quail and stuff. And my wife pulled up behind me on the road and, and was like honking. And then she got the video and you can hear her and Michael like laughing at me and stuff. Like, what is he doing out here? And, um, so I, I would, you know, but that's how I would do it. And I was just so into it, man, that I picked up, I didn't want to, I didn't want to poach any of Daniel, Daniel's accounts. So I went out of my way to like, not, you know, like I didn't want any of his accounts, but, but you're both like doing pastured chicken. Right. And so I picked up 
a couple in Athens, and then I had a couple in Atlanta, and then somehow I, I thought I need to get a couple in Savannah. Uh, I think because I just wanted to be able to see the beach, you know, and I, I think I had a running fantasy going back to middle school of living near the coast, you know. And so um, I picked up uh, doing quail at the – God, what is that restaurant in Savannah? What's that? Elizabeth on 37th, right? And mm-hmm. um, I would drive the quail down. And I was too stupid. Like, all these chefs wanted quail deboned right and like i was i my nuts were small enough that i would never stand up for myself because i just i really wanted to be doing what i was doing you know yeah yeah and you're trying to compete with quail you're competing against like like plantation quail which is a giant quail outfit and not, and not that far down i mean down i-20 right that's in right in greensboro yeah and they you know when you when you're dealing against big companies like they can do things to a product that you can't do. Like they can, they can debone a quail and have four quail in a package all boned out, even like a tunnel sleeve bone. Uh, it's stuff that they can do, but if you're just one person, you can do that, but it's going to kill you. And I, and I, but that's what they all wanted. They didn't want to take them whole. They wanted them boned out. And I got to the point where I was boning out like 125 quail a week. Like, and it was just killing my wrists and my fingers and stuff. And, um, but doing that Elizabeth account, I would drive them down there. My grandmother lived in Reedsville and I would stop in and see her. And somehow, man, I got to thinking I was about a year sober and we were going along pretty good And inland. I had cross paths with inland seafood. Um, believe it or not, the owner of inland had my chicken when we still lived in, in Monroe in the neighborhood and called me and wanted to be carrying the chicken. And so here I am, I'm doing quail and like inland wants to be carrying the chicken. And I was really thinking at this moment in time that like, my God feels right. I am going to be a millionaire. All right. So, so stop time out real quick. Just a step back. So, and you are, how many, like how many birds are you doing a week? Are you growing? Not a, not a ton. I mean, I may be doing like a hundred and something quail a week and like, I don't know, like, 60 or 70 chickens. Okay. And then for the chickens, are you, do you have chicken tractors? Yeah. How are you managing yeah. Them? Okay. So yeah, I would do like a hoop house mm-hmm. and basically take cattle panels and, and fold them up into like small hoop houses that I can attach a rope onto a board and be able to pull it around to move it. I would use mm-hmm. my mower normally, like pull my mower, my zero turn old trusty up to it and move it. Um, I had waters in there, but I was still, it was pretty primitive. I was watering by hand. It was just watering and, the it wasn't anything automated or anything like that. Right. I was processing in my backyard. And did you get this from, um, did you get this model from Salatin's in terms of chicken tractors? Yeah. I mean, yeah, cause Salatin does, but his, the way that his, his houses look different. Um, he doesn't use like the big hoop houses as far as I could tell, but if you, I mean, I just started researching it to death. You know, it's funny, like you major in history thinking, oh, what a worthless degree. But man, a history major will teach you how to research like just till to death. Like I will research. I still do it. Like I'll obsess over researching things and figure it out. And yeah, if you poke around long enough on the Internet, you're going to find like old ways of doing chickens. Because that's the thing with all that doing chickens outdoors like that is like that hadn't really been done since maybe, maybe the sixties, but definitely I would say probably even before that, it pretty much died off. And so it's not like you can go talk to some old guy and be like, Hey man, well, when you were raising, you know, hundreds of chickens outside, how did you do it? Yeah. Like those people are dead. Well, and I don't know if we're misguided, but like you don't think about an older chicken industry, right? People had some chickens in their yard. They had a little chicken house. But there was, there was the way that you do chicken in that style now was essentially they, the way they did it back then, they just, they were growing for their neighbors, you know, in their, in their town. Yeah. That was like, with with the tractors, like moving them around, Well, moving them or even just, you know, what you, what you would call ranging, you know, ranging poultry, meaning they're outside and they have some sort of shelter somewhere. Yeah, they and, come back and lay there. Yeah, they come back and sleep inside, and you're supplementing 
the food that you're feeding them, the grain with whatever they're pecking around and getting outside. And then back in those days, they weren't growing chickens for Purdue or Claxton chicken. They were growing chickens for themselves and selling them in their community, which is basically the model that Salatin was promoting. Yeah. You know, and that's what I had bought into. Like, that's how it all should work. You should, you should be a small grower, grow chicken outside and supply your neighbors, you know, your community where you live. And whoever else, you know, Elizabeth on 37th, like whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah, or, and, and, or, uh, and Peter, Peter Dale. And just to like, no doubt, just give him a quick shout, like we said already. But Peter Dale is uh, co owner, chief chef, whatever the terms are, the names for uh-huh. that, the National in Athens. He also is a part of uh, Sea Bear. Um, uh, yeah, Sea Bear, the oyster bar. And then he does condor chocolates too. Yeah, I think the name, there's a, well, and also he's got this new thing. I think Maypole has started, and then something called Tlaloc. I'm not quite sure how to say that. But anyway, awesome. he, he and he has like he was one of the first like true tried true. I mean, I don't know what how to say this. All the best things about him that he deserves because he's supported farmers from the get go. And I know like secondhand he would never ever brag or like you know say no. that he supports farmers. But he, um, I I know that he has taken in collard greens in a. I mean, like a rucksack full of oak leaves and sorted through the oak leaves to find the greens to wash to use. Like he has gone like out of his way to take product from local farmers in order just to kind of create that market for folks in the Athens area. With, and, without a doubt. Instrumental. Yeah. Had I walked into 95% of restaurants out there, I would have never heard back from them. I mean, I was giving him such a raw product that a chef would not be accustomed to seeing. Right. And it just yeah. happened to be Peter happened. Thank God. It's, it's funny, man. You, fu- the, if, when you're meant to be doing something, the right people all of a sudden appear in your path. You know what I mean? The sponsor who tells you you're going to be a millionaire. Absolutely. He, 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 you know, I had sponsors before him, you know what I mean? But I wasn't ready. Like I was, they say with that saying, when the teacher, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Mm-hmm. It's true, man. It's like it has nothing to do with the te- it, it has everything to do with the person being ready. And then all of a sudden everything seems right because you're walking that path now. And like, oh, Peter was instrumental, man. Instrumental. I'm indebted to him. All right. So go back real quick. So when you're cleaning also your chickens, you're doing the backyard, but like technically – I mean, for everybody who doesn't know about the chickens in Georgia, is that you're cleaning your own chickens because there's no place for you to take the chickens. And actually, like at that point in time, I think the most states have a twenty thousand on bird exemption, so on farm exemption. So if you can, you can actually clean yourself twenty thousand chickens on your farm, mm-hmm. and then as long as you follow the procedure and have them labeled correctly, and they you know they get they're chilled, then you can sell those chickens in Georgia. You cannot. They deleted that exemption, which is, I think, a federal exemption, in order because of biosecurity issues and bird flu. Um, and you know, and chickens are are uh, are easily killed, and like uh, diseases run through chickens pretty fast. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, there's questions that people have, especially folks who are trying to do chickens in a more maverick and, and interesting kind of way. Um, oh, to say like, hey. You know, is this is it really necessary to delete that exemption? And I think it's been moved back up to five thousand now on farm. And but the the state of the, the part of the action is supposed to come and uh, inspect your 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 killing kind of facility. Like there, and there are some smart things that they're asking for. It's not it's not incredibly burdensome when you think about what they're asking in terms of chilling, and they want they want you to have an area that's screened to keep flies out. But at the same time, so you know, Brandon, you're selling. If, if you're having to feed a chicken, um, even though it's, it's pasture raised, but you also mm-hmm. have to supplement it. And then mm-hmm. you also then are cutting, I mean, you're, you're processing in your backyard and mm-hmm. then you're delivering it. Like, what are your chicken, you know, what are you, what are you able to sell that chicken for? Uh, back then we all, and, and the weird thing about all this pasture raised chicken is that the price really hasn't changed. It's like the mm. price I'm sure should have gone up, you know? But back then we would try to stick around $4 a pound. And I think now you try to stick around the same, same thing. And, you know, with the processing stuff, um, it's like, you know, if you're killing a a large animal and having to bleed it out and scald it and 
like a hog, for example, like, yeah, there's a lot of time. There's a lot of things that can potentially happen from the kill floor to the time it's actually cut up, you know, because and it's large pieces of meat that potentially are going to go bad. Um, like it could get out from under you if you were trying to do that type of thing, like on farm. Yeah. Um, but with chicken, you know, the problem was, see, like if you're doing hogs or beef or goats, like there's plenty of places in the state of Georgia to take, you know, they're called, it's, I call them processors, but it's just an abattoir if you want to be fancy or slaughterhouse. They're mom and pop type places um, where anybody can take a pig and have it killed and cut up. And they can cut it up retail cuts, pork chops, or they can cut it into primals or leave it whole or whatever um, for, a, for a fee. Um, but if you try to find a place like that that does chicken, you, won't, you will not find that in Georgia. No, and, they do not exist. No, and, and you only find one in the entire southeastern United States. And so you want to talk about like um, a city. You're talking about, wait, South Carolina? Yeah, in King Street. It- and if you call North Carolina, you know, Southeast, like there was one. There was one. That's right. But, but for a long time, there wasn't. Yeah. You know, and then it opened up and now I guess it's gone or whatever. But I mean, even if there was two, you know, I mean, yeah, shit, even if right. there was five, you know, there, it's still like, um, that's right. a monopoly. And they try, they talk about opening one up in uh, Alabama and then the prices aren't right. They t- I've talked about some in North Florida. I mean, it's like a unicorn um, trying to run a, a, a private small scale chicken yeah slaughterhouse for sure and i think that it's like see when you're doing it it makes so much sense to do it on farm because when you tell people when when you say on farm it makes it it's like when i say that it makes it seem so like down home like podunk you know like eh, gross he's killing chickens and stuff but <laughs> the reality is is it it's it's really clean and it's really quick and so you got these animals that are going through a pretty hygienic death and then going immediately into a cooling tank. And it's so, it's such a fast, clean process. I mean, when I used to deal with the processing plant in South Carolina with the chickens, I I had that inspector one time tried to sell me pills. What? Yeah. He, I don't, even, I don't even know <laughs> I if I should say. say this, but I mean, for one thing, they were charging two, three dollars and eighty cents a head, right? And so you show up with eight hundred chickens. That's going to cost yeah. you thirty two hundred dollars. Yeah, and and you have zero control over how they're going to actually look when they get packaged up, right? And then yes. the it's like you wouldn't know that until until you've seen it, but it's not like the inside of these kill of these slaughterhouses like there's nothing special about them that's going to jump out at you and you're going to say oh that's so much cleaner than right it would be if we were to do that ourselves as long as we sanitized everything like it's just a uh a concrete room and it's got stainless steel tables and a bunch of workers that half of them don't give a shit about being there and some of them might and but they're not getting paid very well um and then an inspector but it's USDA inspected. Yeah, it was USDA inspected. and So you can sell it anywhere. You can sell it across state lines. Yeah. You can sell it anywhere you want. And he, you know, the inspector would be sitting on his stool, you know. I guess he's glancing, glancing at, at each bird that passed by. But he, he's, yeah, not, he's, he's not probably, combing over them with a fine-tooth comb. He probably just watches, and then he picks a sample, right? One out of every 500 or something yeah. like that, just to make sure there's no uh, issues. And then that's his, you know, that's his regulatory responsibility. Well, he had gotten hurt, and then he – I did not care for this guy, and that's the only reason I'm going to tell the story. I would show up with ducks, and he would raise hell, you know, just like, oh, shit, man, showing up with all them fucking ducks out here, man. <laughs> and you talk about, like, man, they would charge me $8 a head to do these ducks, right? I'd, I'd be bringing three or 400 at a time. And so you're, a, you're just paying out the nose for this. Yeah. And then the inspector is like acting like that. So it doesn't give you a warm, fuzzy feeling about how this is all going to go down. Why does he care about the ducks? I don't know. Just, Cause it would take them too long or whatever. And, but he would raise hell. 
And I'd always be like, oh, yeah, well, whatever, man. I got to make a living. You're the, you ought to talk to the guy that owns the facility. And then if y'all don't want to be doing ducks, then he should stop advertising that y'all do ducks. I kind of got a little heated at one point because I was like, I got really tired of hearing him every time I showed up because I was going every week, every two weeks. But then one time he got hurt and he tried, he ended out getting prescribed like Oxycontins. And he comes up to me like on the low, like, to the side he's like yo man hey if you got any homeboys or anybody that wants you know wants to get fucked up man let me know (laughs) i didn't even tell him but i'm thinking dog i've been sober for like (laughs) a few years so no i don't want them and and be like i didn't ever screw around with that anyways but i was like man like dude come on man I mean, it was weird, man, and I, it was towards the end where I was just like, you know what, this isn't going to work out. But um, kind of got off subject there. But well, um, all right, so we maybe we can break this into two parts because we're really running here. Because I would like, <laughs> yeah, to we probably should. Down. Yeah, that's what we'll do, guys. We're gonna we'll follow back up. Um, this is uh, we'll have give y'all plenty of, of listening material to um, to go home on if you haven't already started that journey yet. Um, but we want to follow it. We as in our next episode, we'll follow Brandon's relocation to Reedsville, his experiences there. Um, God, and then, I'm so long-winded. I mean, we're not well, even in next, Reedsville yet. Where his, his farm is now. I, I think we've done a really – I think it's been really interesting. And I actually think some of the side notes are pretty um, informative. I mean, that whole thing about what you just talked about with the U.S. The inspector trying to sell you drugs. Oh, it's a, I could have killed that guy. Uh, ah, fuck y'all. Fuck your duck. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you bitch they cost they cost eight dollars a head this is three thousand dollars i'm about to stroke y'all a check for for like a product that's gonna look like shit because you don't care why does and he's making a salary a government salary like it doesn't matter yeah. for him at all he doesn't no. show up every day anyway it doesn't matter how many yeah. birds they clean oh it burned my ass burned my ass now he's going to come kill me because I dimed him out about trying to sell me drugs. No, nobody knows who it is. We all right. He doesn't even work. That I ain't going to say his name. No, you I mean, shouldn't. Don't say his name. No, nah, it ain't like anything personal. But the problem with that whole thing was that they were giving me back a product that was superiorly inferior. Yeah. Like the ducks wouldn't be plucked right. They would be feathers all over them. They wouldn't be, you know, and it was like if you're charging $8 a head and then the inspector is raising hell on top of it and trying to sell me drugs like this is just not and i have no choice of where else i can go <laughs> yeah there's there's i think also from our all farmers there's a major all farmers are at a disadvantage because of the middlemen in, in, in the system whether it's the marketers or the processors right so you're trying to get your final product back and it doesn't look like anything you want it to be but if you take a cow to the cow sale it may lose 10 pounds while it's there. Something weird will happen, you know, and then mm-hmm. and you'll come, mm-hmm. you'll get your check. And you're like, how's that, that cow? Not only did that cow not, did not quote unquote grade out like you thought it would or weigh like, like you thought it was going to weigh when you got your money off of it. But you'd also don't know what happened if there was any kind of minor conspiracy. Like if, if, you know, yeah. your, your cows, calves came up at the end of the sale and a couple of buyers were all in the cahoots and they said, well, we'll just hold these down and we won't bet, we won't bid these up. And, uh, you know, and then, that's right. Then they'll take them out to Colorado uh, or something. Yeah. It's like, a you know, everybody in this industry, even people, I think that just live in small towns and have dabbled raising a hog or two here and there or whatever. They're all pretty aware that like unscrupulous processors are out there and you may take your animal in, but not get your animal back. Um, if you're going through all that work to do like grass fed beef or something, and then you're not getting back the carcass that you brought in, like that's potentially a, a problem, right? And like, I think, you know, you just got to find, like I, I have found, I have good relationships with processors now. You got to find people that, that you trust. And the way that you can do that is when you have the choice to, because I, I don't, you, I, it's not like, these aren't the first processors that I ever used. I've found these guys based on like it not working out numerous other places you know what i mean yeah totally yeah and And when you when you don't have that choice it's like it really and when you don't have that choice and then the government tries to say well we know you don't have a choice as far as like where you can take it and get inspected by us and you know we're not going to just let you do it even though there's an exemption for that you know it's like well (laughs) 
that starts to teeter in the in the range of like the government actually interfering with your right as an American to make a living. Yeah, I mean, it, look, this this is kind of a, I mean, it, it divides or it cuts both ways, like politically, because on this one hand, you need regulation because you want to break up monopolies, so you want to have the choice, but then it's almost this overreach too, where you can't just you know live you know, you're not allowed to just eat the stuff you want to eat um and, that's right and, and joel salton has a little essay called everything i want to do is illegal or something is illegal. Like that. Yeah. yeah and a lot of it is made up jobs you know yeah it's like the guy that tried to sell me pills his job it doesn't he's not doing anything you yeah. know what i mean yeah. it's like yeah he his job is is he is he is just a guy that is getting paid because they invented a job because they're trying to create jobs. You know what I mean? It's like, he doesn't care. Yeah. He, he yeah. does. He does not. He, it's like, not to say that inspectors are bad people, but it's like, there's gotta be some sort of, in that situation, the, it's like, there's no incentive for anybody to do anything differently because there's no competition. Right. That's right. He doesn't you know, care. He, yeah, no, he's sitting there. He doesn't give yeah. a crap. Yeah. He's making his side money selling pills plus a salary. Yeah, and the guy at King Street, I mean, frankly, you give him a little bit more credit because he's running this thing. He didn't have to. He's probably not. He's, I mean, how much money could that process? I don't think it was highly profitable. And I will say this. The guy that ran the King Street facility was genuinely a good guy. I, I liked him a lot. I, I don't feel like any of that was his fault. His hands were tied. Um, he, I don't think he has any, any choice over any of that stuff. I never brought that up to him because I didn't want to get anybody in trouble. So it wasn't like I even voiced that and said, hey, by the way, you know, the inspector, I, just, I think I mentioned to him that I thought the inspector was a dick a time or two. But I mean, what's he going to do? He's just like, all right. No, he can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. and, and it wasn't highly profitable for them anyways. And like, yeah, I mean, if, um, I'm sure, and that's been some years, you know, so it's probably very different now. And it wasn't like the, the processor wasn't indicative of the, I think the duck thing, if you just isolate that, the chicken stuff, it would always go, it got to a point where that would go pretty well and they did a good job. I think the duck stuff was just a product of like, they didn't know that they were going to be so difficult to do. And then. All of a sudden, I'm not bringing like 20. I'm bringing like 400, and it just became too much. I think for for everybody. But I think what we should do is just break this into two. Sure. So like we can just hook up tomorrow and do the the second half and um, yeah, keep going. With that, it, yeah, I mean? that sounds really good. Yeah, because I, I think touch on um, a couple things that are happening down here and uh, yeah, man, good start. Uh, we'll finish this up tomorrow. Um, I. Obviously, everyone's not going to hear this um, in time, but um, hopefully you get to catch the Burt Reynolds Marathon tonight on Turner Classic Movies. Starts Look at 8 at with uh, – yeah, this is a free free sponsorship here, although we, we are taking a paid sponsorships at any point in time. Um, mm-hmm. You just contact us, info at streakalinepod.com or on Instagram. That's at streakaline. Um but yeah, so I think it starts with Smokey, and then at ten o'clock, Deliverance, my, my favorite, and then I think uh, Hooper, I think at twelve, and then uh, Longest Yard and Smokey the Bandit two uh, to round out the night. So that's great. Look at you, I love it. Oh, um, <laughs> awesome, man! Oh right. yeah, dude. All right, man. That'd be great. All right, sounds good. All right, we'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, thanks everybody for listening. Hey, real quick, uh, listener of the week. Dylan Groovy, appreciate the comments and all the feedback, and uh, we'll talk to y'all soon. Rock on. See you later, buddy. Bye-bye.